Well, I want to invite you now to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 24. Chapter 24. We come to this section in the book of Acts after Paul has returned to Jerusalem and then he is taken into custody by the Romans and beginning in chapter 24 he faces one, the first of three testimonies before Roman governors, Roman rulers. The first of three testimonies before Felix, Festus, and Agrippa. And in chapter 24, we will look at the very first of those testimonies that he gives while under arrest, under Roman arrest and Roman custody. Acts chapter 24. The scriptures read, After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders, with an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. After Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, since we have through you attained much peace and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. But that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. For we have found this man a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple, and then we arrested him. We wanted to judge him according to our own law, but Lysias, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. By examining him yourself, Concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. Verse 10. When the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul responded, quote, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I was up in Jerusalem to worship, neither in the temple nor in the synagogues nor in the city itself, did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. Nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings, in which they found me occupied in the temple, 
having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to make accusation if they should have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council, other than for this one statement which I shouted out while standing among them. Quote, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today, unquote. But Felix, verse 22, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the commander comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul, and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. O God of heaven, we give you thanks for your precious word. Your word is eternal. As it declares itself, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. And so, Father, I pray that you would illumine our minds, grant to us understanding that we might see great and marvelous things from thy word. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. Alan Cooperman, in an article entitled, Many Americans Don't Argue About Religion or Even Talk About It, writes a summary report from the Pew Research Center, which says this, quote, Religion seems to be a subject many people avoid. About half of U.S. adults say they seldom or never talk about religion with people outside their family. Half. And roughly four in ten say they seldom or never discuss religion even with members of their immediate family, unquote. Half of all Americans will say they rarely, if ever, talk about religion with people outside their family, and about 40% never even discuss it with members of their immediate family. The researchers then asked, quote, what do you do when someone disagrees with you about religion? Just 10%, 1 in 10, say they try to persuade the person to change their mind. The vast majority of evangelicals, 70%, try to, quote, understand the person's beliefs and agree to disagree. And about 1 in 6 say they avoid discussing religion with the person, period. Well, of course, the editor writes that we do try to understand another person's beliefs, but according to the same survey, 88%, 88% of evangelicals would not dare to challenge 
a non-Christian's beliefs. Of course, we try to understand, but 9 and 10 never challenge someone else's beliefs. Paul would certainly not be in that 88%. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul, after all that we've gone through here in the book of Acts, simply going to Athens where there were hundreds of altars and idols and gods, and simply going there to understand their views on whom they worship? Or simply going to Ephesus where there was the temple of Artemis and the seventh wonder of the world, and to go there among all of the idolatry, the witchcraft, the black magic by which they were practicing, and simply try to agree to disagree. Or simply seeing Paul walk into the city of Corinth, a city with temples that had temple prostitutes pandering their immorality, without challenging the lifestyle of the Corinthians? No, not the Apostle Paul. Not from what we have studied all up through this time. No, for Christians, the blatant wickedness really should assault the consciences of the Christian. Even Lot, you recall, Abraham's nephew, Lot, who chose to live in the immoral city of Sodom. The Bible says about Lot, who lived in Sodom, in 2 Peter 2, 7-8, it says, And if he, God, God, rescued Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, in verse 8, in 2 Peter 2, it says this, For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, referring to Lot, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. The soul and the consciences of Christians ought to be offended by the immorality and should cause and drive people to say something that would be corrective, that would confront the immorality of the day. Neither the Apostle Paul nor the Apostles or Christ would have simply stood by and agreed to disagree. No, what they did was they told people what they needed to hear, not what they wanted to hear. And in this text today, Paul does that very thing. He tells Felix, the governor, what he needed to hear, not what he wanted to hear. And Felix's reaction is typical of many people today. When faced with the truth, they will simply avoid it. When faced with the word of God, they avoid the tough questions. And using the phrase, I simply don't have time. So by way of background, in case you're coming on board at this time, in case you're joining us here in chapter 24, by way of background, Paul has completed all three of his missionary journeys. He has completed all three of his missionary journeys, having planted a number of churches, having experienced a number of things that are untold types of persecution, he has come to Jerusalem, bringing a very generous offering from the Gentile church to give to the Jerusalem Jewish church as a symbol of solidarity that they have given to the impoverished Jews, that they are one church. And he's come to the church in Jerusalem. He meets James and the elders. The apostles have handed over the authority of the church to James and the elders. He gives a missions report to them. They praise God. And then, then there is the addressing of issues immediately. 
No drum roll, no applause, no retirement, no 401k that he goes after these years on the mission field. No. Some of the Jews in Asia see him in the temple. And immediately there is a riot, as we saw in previous chapters. They drag Paul out of the temple and they begin to flail on him, beat him, desiring to kill him. Had it not been for the Romans who in Fort Antonio, which was within eyeshot of the temple grounds, they come and they rescue, they rescue Paul. And they don't know what's going on, and they try and find out from the crowd, why in the world is this uproar from all of the Jews about Paul? People were saying this, people were saying that, they couldn't understand, they didn't know what was going on, and so they take Paul into custody, protective custody. And they take him and they say, well, you know what we're going to do? We're going to find out why these Jews don't like you. And so they stretch out his body, ready to scourge him with a whip that has bone and metal on the tips. When Paul asks, is it right for you to scourge a Roman citizen without charge? Well, it would have been very wrong to. In fact, it was very wrong for them to arrest him in the first place, a Roman citizen without charge. And so they let him go. But they still don't know why he has caused or been the center of such an uproar. And so they bring him to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the ruling body of the Jews. Seventy leaders made up of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and some elders. And they bring him before then, and here he makes this statement to which he says that he shouted out in verses 21, For the resurrection of the dead I am on trial before you today. And of course, that brought a theological discussion, I should say. It was a dispute between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and there was a tremendous conflict between the two parties such that the Romans were afraid. Paul, who is in trial here, is going to be ripped apart by these two major factions, and so they once again take him into protective custody. God protects him a second time, once from the mob, once from the Sanhedrin, and then the third time there was a plot that is discovered, a plot that comes from 40 men who had made a pledge that they would kill Paul. Well, the Romans find out about the plot through Paul's nephew, and they take him by night all the way to Caesarea. And this is where we find him. We find him as he appears, as he appears in Caesarea before the first of three Roman rulers, Felix, Festus, and Agrippa. And we see his defense, and we see what Paul does. Paul tells Felix what he needs to hear, not what he wants to hear. He gives him what he needs, not what he wants. And Felix avoids the truth because the truth convicts him of sin. There are some who are strongly opposed to Christianity. There are others who simply avoid the truth. They avoid the confrontation that truth brings, they avoid the conviction that the Word of God brings. They don't want to talk about religious things. They don't want to talk about God. They don't want to discuss things that are uncomfortable for them. And I am sure that many of you have friends and relatives who would fit that description. This morning, what we will see in this passage here in chapter 24 is we see five lessons, five lessons in the dialogue that Paul has with Felix, five practical lessons in the dialogue that Paul has with Felix. 
Felix. And the first is described in the first nine verses that we ought to be not surprised, not to be surprised that there is opposition, that there is opposition. And we saw this principle time and time again. Every time Paul would go into a city, he would go to the synagogue. He would share about the Messiah. He would share about the resurrection. And there would be opposition. After five days, it says in verse 1, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders with an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. After Paul had been summoned, Tertullus begins to accuse him. Now you recall Ananias. Ananias was one of the most corrupt high priests in the history of Israel. He was a Sadducee. And you recall the Sadducees were those who ran the temple. The Pharisees ran the synagogues. The Sadducees were the ones who only believed in the first five books of Moses. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in miracles. They were businessmen. Businessmen who were in religious garb. And here Ananias was in charge of running the temple. And they ran the temple like a business. And of course, here along comes Paul preaching what which was true. And Ananias, of course, doesn't like anything that would hamper business. And so they make this 65-mile journey, 65 miles from Jerusalem all the way to Caesarea, in order to accuse Paul and to bring charges against him. He brings an attorney named Tertullus. Tertullus, here is an attorney, it wasn't unusual for them to bring some sort of expert in the law, and Tertullus begins his speech with this flowery buttering up of Felix. That's what he does. And he begins and says, well, since we have through you attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way, in everywhere, most excellent Felix with all thankfulness. But that I might not weary you any further, I beg you to grant to us, by your kindness, a brief hearing. Now, all of this is nothing but really schmoozing up to Felix, just so you know who Felix was. He was the very first slave in all of Roman history to have a governorship in the Roman Empire. The very first slave in the history of the Roman Empire to become a governor. And this would have been an admirable thing, really, if he had earned it, but he didn't. The way that he got there was that his brother was good friends with a future Caesar, a future emperor of the Roman Empire. So when his brother's friend became emperor, his brother suggested that, well, the emperor would give Felix a position in the Roman governorship or the Roman uh, Empire as a political figure. Well, he wasn't given the governorship at that time, but the guy above him ended up being uh, called back or, or somehow displaced. And so what happened was Felix ended up being governor. Under Felix, well, things got bad. And the reason why they got bad was because he was a bad man. That's all. There was a rise in insurrections, a rise in protests, a rise in anarchy, a rise in rebellions. And so what he did was he put down those rebellions and insurrection with brutality. It was a cruel and very, very masterful, I should say, a very cruel and despotic kind of execution of power. Josephus tells us that he crucified the leaders of various uprising and 
Tacitus, the Roman historian, tells us that he was a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king with the spirit of a slave. Not only that, was he a cruel individual? Well, his wife, Drusilla, whom we'll see later on in the story, was not really his wife, but sort of his wife, I suppose. Drusilla was the youngest daughter of Agrippa I. And she was married to a small-time king, a small-time king, the king of Emesa in Syria, but she didn't find him too exciting. So, through some sort of magician, Felix had uh, convinced uh, her to become his consort and later on become his wife, quote-unquote. She was very young, less than 20 years old. She was born a Jew, but abandoned her worship of God. So here he was, a very cruel, despotic man who was not, not very well liked. In fact, one author writes that he was an unscrupulous, brutal, and scheming politician. And so here was this individual who had caused the Jews to actually distance themselves, and he wasn't very popular whatsoever. In fact, when Tertullus talks about, oh, all of these reforms are being carried out, verse 2, out for this nation, well, there are no recorded reforms being done, unless he's talking about simply the putting down of some of these, these uh, uprisings. Of course, he did put down some uprisings. There was an uprising by the Sicarii, which is also uh, known as some assassins who were anti-Roman terrorists. There was a putting down of the Egyptian false messiah who had garnered a group of Jews that came out of Egypt and there was severe brutality, the individual that Lysias thought Paul was, but he was not too bright. And so here Tertullius lauds his accomplishments, attempts to butter him up, and then quickly says, well, we don't want to waste any of your time, probably because there wasn't a whole lot to say good about him in the first place. So he says, basically, let's move on. And Tertullius, what he does is he brings charges against Paul. He brings three categories of charges against Paul in his speech. They were the charge of sedition, which is the violation of Roman law. Sedition, and causing an uprising. Secondly, he brings the charge of sectarianism. Sectarianism, a violation of Jewish law. And then he brings the charge, that of sacrilege, a violation of God's law. Violation of Roman law, Jewish law, and God's law. In sedition, sectarianism, and sacrilege. And he brings these two in his, these three things up in his speech. The first charge of sedition was really the only one that Rome cared about. One that he could be brought up and charged with, that he was a part of a, of a cause of sedition, an uprising up against Rome. That's what it was. Because Rome, they loved their Pax Romana, their Pax Romana, their Roman peace throughout the empire. I mean, everyone likes to have peace, whether it's in your city, your family, or whatever, because everybody enjoys peace. And that peace was so precious to Rome, anything that would come up as an uprising against Rome, they were ready to put down. And so here he says, Tertullius says in verse 5, for we have found this man a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. In other words, he's saying Paul is such a troublemaker. He's a troublemaker that's stirring up dissension among all the Jews. Well, in reality, what was it? The Jews were the ones that were causing the riots. 
the Jews would point out Paul. There's a man who preaches against the law, who preaches against the temple, who preaches against us as a people. Let's beat him up, beat him to death, etc., whatever it was, throw him out. Paul was the victim, not the instigator. The charge given here was intentionally vague, no time, no place, no proof, of which Paul points that out later in his speech. The charge of sedition, unsubstantiated sedition, was what they accused him of. Secondly, they charged him with sectarianism. They accused him, I should say, of sectarianism, violation of the Jewish law. It says, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. The sect of the Nazarenes. Now, this wasn't meant as a compliment at all. The Nazarenes were those, of course, from, Nazari, uh, uh, from Nazareth, and it was, well, Nazareth wasn't looked upon as really a, a very uppity place at all. In fact, it was looked upon as kind of a backwards folk come from there. That's what Nathaniel said when Philip came to him and said, look, I, I found the Savior, Nathaniel. And there Nathaniel is, and Nathaniel says to him in John 1.46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip says, come and see. Well, they accused him of being the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And thirdly, they accused him of sacrilege. Sacrilege. Violation of God's law. Verse 6, and he even tried to desecrate the temple. He even tried to desecrate the temple. And the unfounded accusation was they saw Paul in the temple, and we saw in a previous chapter, well, what, did, what happened? Well, they saw Paul, and of course they didn't like him. They saw him with a, with a Gentile earlier in the day. They saw him with a Gentile, and they believed that he had tried to bring this Gentile into the temple, which would incur, if it actually happened, they were given the right to execute that individual, for no Gentile was to be inside of the temple. But again, they had no proof of that. So they told Felix, if you examine Lysias, the commander who was there, he will confirm everything we've told him. There he will come and testify and substantiate everything that we have said. They will substantiate all of these things, that he has broken Roman law, that he's broken Jewish law, that he's broken God's law, and he is a troublemaker and a pest. Everywhere that Paul has gone to preach the gospel, the Jews dogged him and they followed him all over the place, causing all sorts of of difficulties. Don't be surprised at opposition. Jesus promised his disciples, promised us we would face opposition. John 15 verse 18 says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. If you're of the world, the world will love its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. And the same sentiment is echoed by Paul when he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You're going to have trouble. Don't be surprised at opposition. Some Christians think that, well, you know what? If the world hates you, you must be doing something wrong. You may be, but doesn't necessarily mean that you are. Somehow, some way, some Christians think, well, 
You're not supposed to be disliked by the world. The world is not supposed to be offended by you. In fact, for some Christians, that fear of being disliked, that fear of being opposed, that fear of being hated is enough, that fear to mute the testimony that we have as a Christian. No, I will never say that I'm a Christian. No, I will never wear a Christian t-shirt or whatever it may be because I might be disliked. That fear mutes the testimony of many believers. But simply by virtue of being a Christian and telling others that you're a Christian can be enough to garner poor treatment. So don't be surprised at opposition because it will come. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, Paul tells Timothy, will be persecuted. Don't be surprised at opposition. Secondly, second thing we see here in verse 10, that we must be bold when it comes to our faith. We must be bold when it comes to our faith. Don't be surprised at opposition. We must be bold. Governor told Paul, you could have the floor. And Paul responded to the charges that were leveled at him. And in the face of these accusations, he gave a bold statement, albeit even with a cheerful attitude. It says here, verse 10, I cheerfully make my defense. Against these unsubstantiated claims, Paul was happy to respond with specific facts, with very specific accounting, the number of days that he was there, about where he was, that no one would find him, causing any type of riot, no one could prove the things that they were now accusing of them. He did admit to saying that he worshipped God, that he was a Christian that he was according to the way in which they call a sect, verse 14, that he served God, believing everything that is in the law and the prophets. There will certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And for the righteous resurrection of the dead, he says in verse 21, I am on trial before you today. And in verse 25, he says this, and as he was discussing with Felix and Drusilla, righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. He not only pointed these things out to his accusers, that he believed in the resurrection of which Ananias did not. That the Jews were the ones who took part in the uproar. He was upfront about his being a part of the way. That he was a Christian. Here he defended himself by saying what was true. And his hope was in the resurrection of the dead. Despite the fact that his accusers were right there, despite the fact that Felix would later on be convicted. It's not because he was defying Roman law that he was arrested. It's not because he was defying God's law or desecrating the temple. What they were accusing, and really their motivation was, was that he was proclaiming Jesus, the resurrection of the dead. He was not ashamed to speak to Felix or to the court to tell them what was true. And when he spoke with Felix and Drusilla later on, he spoke to them about righteous, which is righteousness, which is right living, self-control, and judgment. Now, it is very obvious that the three, the individuals there, Felix and Drusilla, were living anything but a righteous life, a life of self-control, and a life of purity. They would face the judgment of God. Paul didn't pull his punches. He didn't come to tell them what they 
wanted to hear. He told them what they needed to hear. And our testimony for Christ requires boldness. It requires courage to speak the truth in love with grace. It requires that we be bold to confront the unrighteousness of others. What an opportunity it is to witness for Christ. You know, last week we had really a wonderful opportunity to reach out to the University of Washington during dog days, a fair for registered student organizations, and it was really a joy to see 15, 18 people from here and the students pass out over 2,000 flyers and to talk with people and give away a couple hundred bags of chips and to see people that would ask us about the ministry, and it was a good thing. Now, granted, students always love free food, so we don't know how many of them will actually come. But to see them, the students all come out, and to be bold enough to even decide that they're going to talk with people. And we met atheists, and we would meet agnostics, and people who were, you know, of different religions, and people who didn't agree with what we believed, etc. But there was not that... It takes boldness, and takes courage, and it takes the, 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 the impetus of God working in the heart to desire to reach out. Now, some were more bold than others. Some would hand out a flyer when they were 10 feet away or whatnot, and they would come, notice that the girls were more effective sometimes than the guys. But to go out and to be bold for Christ and to say, as Paul would write in the Roman, to Romans, Romans 1, 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. It is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes, first for the Jew and then the Gentile. Not ashamed to let people know, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. I'm a believer. I go to church. I worship God. All of these things. And yet, as we learned early on, Pew Research says that 9 out of 10 would never, ever challenge a non-Christian's beliefs. And half would not even talk with anybody outside their family about their faith. What's ironic is sometimes I think Christians argue more with other Christians rather than witnessing to those who don't know Christ. One pastor writes about how he was ministering with some high, school, high schoolers in his youth ministry some years back. And they had gone out to share Christ at a summer resort area. And one of the youth, his name was Jeff, he approached a group of older collegiates. I'm sure he was intimidated, but he asked them if he could give his testimony to them, tell them about Jesus. The biggest guy responded that if he were to do so, he would throw him in the lake. So Jeff walked away. Then he thought about it, and he returned and told them the good news of Jesus. And when he finished, they threw him in the lake. And if that's as bad as it gets, well... That's not very bad at all. Being bold can be difficult, even for the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians 6.19, he writes to the Ephesians, and we recall Ephesus held this great grand temple of Diana, and they were the center of black magic and witchcraft and sorcery, and when he had gone there to plant the church at Ephesus, many had come to know Christ, and they burned their books, and they burned their incantations, and they turned to Christ, but still it was a center of, of black and dark, dark teachings. But he writes to them in Ephesians 6.19, and he says to the Ephesian church, 
Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth and make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Fear can mute our testimony. Paul asks for prayer that he might be bold. It's difficult, I can imagine, if you were in the shoes of the Apostle Paul, every single synagogue you go to, you face rejection upon rejection upon rejection, and many times not only rejection but abuse, not only abuse but also threats, and not only threats but also executions, stonings, being beaten. We can expect opposition, but we are still to be bold to be bold for our faith. Thirdly, we're not to make excuses. We're not to make excuses when we are faced with the truth. We're not to make excuses when we are faced with the truth. Verse 25. Paul here, he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. Felix became frightened and said, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. Paul shared with them, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. They were living an unrighteous life. They had no self-control, and there would be judgment from God. Frank, truthful, forthright, loving confrontation of the sin of Felix and Drusilla, both of whom led a life of sin. Felix was a greedy man on top of that. What was his reaction? He became frightened, and what was his response? Go away. When I find time, I will summon you. He was right to be afraid of the judgment of God. But like many people, he made an excuse. Made an excuse when he was faced with the truth. He gave them the old, I don't have time. I don't have time to listen to this right now. Have you ever heard that? You're talking with somebody about something important. I'm too busy right now. I don't have time for this. Convicted by things that are true, Don't make excuses. Don't say, I don't have time, when in reality, you simply want to avoid the subject. When this truth is spoken, we are to make the right choice. Respond to the word of God. Don't let the opportunity to be right and God, God, who is knocking at the door of your heart, to escape by making an excuse. Don't look at the word of God when it convicts of sin James talks about this in chapter 1, verse 22. Prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he immediately forgets what kind of person he was. Now maybe you have attended church for many, many years. Many years. And you have heard sermon after sermon or lesson after lesson of the Word of God. And from time to time you hear something that you need to do. The Spirit of God convicts you, but you say, that's nice. I don't have the time right now, though. I don't have the time. And nothing changes. Not a doer of the Word, merely hearers. The hearers. That's nice, but I don't have the time to study more. I don't have the time to think more deeply about God. I don't have the time to pray more. I don't have the time to serve more. I don't have the time to listen to these things that confront my lifestyle, that talk to me about a greater and deeper love for God and a conviction. I don't have time. 
But I do have time if the Seahawks are on for three hours. I do have time to get my family up plenty early for a seven o'clock flight on Sunday morning that's going to go to Hawaii. I do have time. If somebody is giving away something for free, especially chips. The question is, who are you like? Are you like Felix sometimes? Who said, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. Do not ignore the Spirit of God and the Word of God that convicts. Jesus said in Matthew 7, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great what it's, was its fall. You see, the truth of the matter is we all make time for the things that are most important to us. We all make time we all make time. And, truth be told, we all make excuses when we're confronted as well by what is true, when we need to change. We can expect opposition. We're called to be bold. And when the Word of God confronts us, we are not to make excuses. Fourthly, God is always concerned about the motives of our heart. God is always concerned about the motives of our heart. Verse 26, same time, he was hoping that money would be given to him by Paul. Therefore, he used to send for him quite often and converse with him. Felix didn't want to hear the truth. He didn't want to be afraid. He didn't want to feel uncomfortable. But gosh, if I bring Paul in, maybe Paul will give me a bribe. Maybe Paul will offer me some money. And for two entire years, he had him in custody. He wanted to be paid off. For two years, he would talk with Paul from time to time, never repenting, never turning from his sin to the Savior. And I'm sure Paul would, would entreat him as well to turn to God. Felix wasn't interested in the truth. He was greedy. He wanted money. And for two years, Paul was stuck underneath house rest. Paul wanted a, had offered a bribe. I'm sure Felix was the type of person who would have taken it. Money is such a lure. Such a lure just in the bribery cases that we see these days with the NCAA that's currently going underway. Individuals were involved or not even in prison already taking, trying to give a bribe, but taking a bribe. Many countries in which people go to, are, they function off of bribery. It's a challenge for missionaries. You want hot water? You've got to bribe the waterman. You want electricity? You've got to bribe the electric guy. You want a license? Well, you've got to bribe the workers. God hates bribery. It's very clear in Deuteronomy 16, 19. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. You shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Proverbs 15, 27, he who profits illicitly troubles his own house, but he who hates bribes will live. We are to hate dirty money. We're to hate bribes. And God is concerned about the motives of the heart. Fifthly, right and wrong are not determined by appealing to the masses. Right and wrong are not determined by appealing to the masses. Verse 27, 
After two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Festus, and he wished to do the Jews a favor. He left Paul in prison. He wasn't concerned about whether Paul was guilty or innocent. He wasn't looking to be just or fair. He was looking, A, for a bribe, and B, because he didn't get it, he wished to do the Jews a favor. You recall, Felix was a very terrible and corrupt and a very vicious ruler. He had caused the Jews to have this distance from him, and so he wanted to get their support and did them a favor by leaving Paul in prison. He kept Paul locked up for two years. But of course, that wasn't someone who was seeking what was right. He wasn't seeking that which was true. Right and wrong are not determined by the appealing of the masses. But in our postmodern culture, where many people claim no absolutes, right and wrong are rendered meaningless and cause moral confusion. In the book entitled Visions of Vocation, there's a Christian author and thinker, his name was Stephen Garber, and he tells a story about meeting a woman who directed the Protection Project. The Protection Project. It's, a, it's an initiative under Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government and addresses the issue of human trafficking. And Garber asked the head of this Protection Project, an initiative under Harvard, so why do you care about the issue of human trafficking? trafficking? And she told the story of her heart opening to the cries of women and girls who are sold into slavery, often into sexual bondage. And after writing on the issue, the Kennedy School hired her to work at their Protection Project initiative in Washington, D.C. Then she describes what happened next. As they were talking in their office, Stephen Gerber writes, I watched her staff walk by in the hallway outside her door, and their serious and eager faces impressed me. She eventually said, I get the most interesting applications here. Just imagine, Harvard University, Washington, D.C., human rights. It's a powerful combination, and it draws unusually gifted young men and women from the best universities in America. But then she surprised me with these words. She said, quote, After a few weeks, they almost always find their way down the hall, knock on my door, and ask to talk. Now I know what they are going to say. After thanking me for the position, the opportunity, a bit awkwardly they ask, quote, But who are we to say that trafficking is wrong in Pakistan? Isn't it a bit parochial for us to think that we know what is best for other people? Why is what is wrong for us wrong for them? To be honest, she says, I just don't have time for that question anymore. The issues we address are too real. They matter too much. I need more students like the one you sent me because I need people who believe there is a basic right and wrong in the universe, unquote. Right and wrong are not determined by the masses, nor determined by what most people believe, nor determined by what most churches believe. It's determined by the Word of God. Determined by the Word of God. And despite being wronged in Paul's defense before Felix, he wasn't bitter, he wasn't resentful, he wasn't wanting to offer a bribe, 
even after two years. But we learn from this text that we are not to be surprised at opposition and to be bold like Paul to tell what people need to hear, not what they want to hear. And when we ourselves are faced with the truth, we are not to give an excuse to say, I simply don't have time. God is always concerned by the motives of our heart because truth matters to God. They are not determined by appealing to the masses. May we be people who stand to speak the truth with grace and with love, telling people what they need to hear, even in the face of opposition. Let's pray. Father in heaven, time and time again, the Apostle Paul is such an example for us, an example of courage, an example of boldness, an example of integrity, an example of loving what is true, an example of proclaiming Christ as Messiah, an example of what it means to speak the truth of what people need to hear, not what they want. And so God, may we be people who are just as bold, who are just as courageous, who desire nothing else than for people to hear and love what is true. The Messiah is our Savior, our Lord, and our Deliverer. In Jesus' name, amen.